Hey, Metal Dave Glessner with you here on another episode of the Talk Louder podcast. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Jason McMaster. What's up, Jason? Howdy, how's everybody doing? Jason, I heard uh, you were recently interviewed for a documentary. I should set this up a little bit. There is a documentary being filmed here in Austin about a legendary music venue that I believe stayed open for about 30 years. It was called The Back Room. Um, it's got a long history. Uh, anyone that's lived in Austin or even in Texas may be familiar with the back room. Any touring bands that came through Austin, Texas may have, uh, played the back room. It's got a very rich history. A lot of big names played there before they were big names. Uh, but anyway, I'm told they interviewed you. Tell me what that was all about. I, um was honored to be interviewed, uh, kind of helped put that place on the map, I guess, is why they wanted to talk to me. Yeah. Um, the, uh, it be, it, I, I'd say it was an institution, you know, that, that club, the back room. Sure. And, um, you know, I mean, I saw Nazareth and cheap trick and the Ramones and, and then later on, you know, you, you play back room was the place you played on your way up and your way down. Yeah. Right. It yeah. Was, the, the exactly. medium to small middle of the road sneaky ass bar that everybody played in. Anyway, the interview was uh, this cool. The, the movie is called, if I, I'm probably going to get this wrong, uh, Bloody and Bruised, the story of the back room or something like that. Yeah. And uh, the, uh, the crew was really cool. Uh, they shot my segment in uh, a bar that's been there forever. Uh, on Airport Boulevard, the old Airport Boulevard near the highway, near 35 off Canning Lane, if people know Austin, um, a place called Barflies. And, uh, you know, uh, bars are not really open right now. And, you know, half capacity in this place, Barflies would be like five people. You know, it's small. <laughs> it's a pub, right? I'm, I'm kidding, yeah. but I'm not kidding. <laughs> and it was so cold in there. I guess they're not running the heat, you know, and we're in the middle of January right now. It's a little chilly and we're looking at some cold temperatures this weekend. Anyway, it was cold. So when you see this film, the, when I watch it, the only thing I'm going to be thinking is, oh, my God, it's so cold. I mean, I was crossing my legs and trying to look good on camera. And <laughs> I didn't want to be a wuss and say, can you turn the heat on in this place? You know what? I think that they, you know, the the owners offered that place up for uh, a location uh, free of charge, and I don't know what the rules were. Anyway, it was cool. They had good questions, just asking about history and things like that, and it yeah. was awesome. And, you know, uh, Pariah came up, Jared's band, and we talked about that and Sims and and just uh, the relevance of it all, the whole thing, yeah. how bands were discovered there, bands were bouncing out of there. It was kind of a place for bands to do production rehearsal early in their tours and things like that, so... Yeah, it's, I think it's I think it's going to be pretty good, and it's done with pro cameras, and it's they you know they had good questions, and that's kind of the real meat. Yeah, and for people that don't know, your band Dangerous Toys, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, was more or less discovered at that venue, at the, or at least your that's performance correct. there. Yeah, led to your recording contract, and the rest is history, which is which is why they probably wanted to interview you. Uh, Dangerous Toys being one of the big draws at the back room in the late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 
just a cool thing, you know, just another reason that, that Austin is cool and without trying too hard to be cool, you know, um, I don't think that they should have ever put that sign up at the airport, uh, you know, live music capital of the world. We didn't need that. Everyone who knew yeah. Austin was cool. They knew it was Austin was cool because they've been here before. You know, all they yeah. got to do is read, read an article in Rolling Stone about Austin. You know, yeah. I don't know what the city was so worried about when they did that. <laughs> but, but anyway, let's, let's move into our, uh, the meat of our show. Talk louder. We were going to talk today about, uh, live albums. Um, uh, something that, uh, you and I have, uh, uh, discussed in the past and, uh, some of our listeners uh, won't be surprised by some of voices, but I'd be willing to bet uh, that we'll either surprise them with one or two titles and or artists, or uh, we'll at least remind them of a live album they forgot about or have gotten the significance of. So um, I should also say that uh, you and I, you know, we could do an entire show on Kiss Alive and Kiss Alive 2, and and we probably will at some point. So uh no disrespect to KISS, but I want this uh, segment to get a little deeper and beyond some of the obvious. Uh, so with that in mind, uh, we'll save KISS for later discussion. And uh, and uh, give, me, give me some of your other albums that rank up there, live albums that are high up in your collection. Well, let's... Let's let's just start with... Uh, I'll, just, I'll just do one, and then you can do one. Yeah, how about that? Good? Perfect. Let's Perfect. start with uh, Judas Priest. I, I'm I'm wearing the shirt, so I, we should start with Judas Priest. Uh, <laughs> Unleashed in the East. Yes, um, yes. Um, I don't have my notes with me right now, but I believe that record came out in like '78, and it was after they had some some really good success in Japan. Um, they were definitely starting to kill it in America. They had done tours. Um, I think their first tour in America was with Foreigner and, uh, Bachman Turner Overdrive or something like that. Wow. And wow. it was, it was yeah. probably in, in smaller theater type venues, you know, and not necessarily, um, arenas yet, you know, yeah. Uh, BTO being from Canada, foreigner being, I think like a mix up of, uh, of, uh, English and, and American, but yeah. I hear that I'm reading Halford's book still. And so I've got a little bit of, of info there. It was one of those things where they probably played 25 minutes at, at that show and at the, on that tour and, and never got any love, barely enough room to set up their gear, probably got screwed out of sound check. And, and those of us who've toured before, uh, in support, uh, that's, that's normal. So it's good to see not a whole lot has changed, <laughs> but, but back yeah. to Japan, they, they did two nights in Japan and they recorded the two nights in Japan. And I know for a fact that Rob was not happy with his, you know, it doesn't matter where I start about how, what this record means to me or the, the little factoids, right? But Rob yeah. was unhappy with his performance and he was worried about it. But it wasn't until later that he actually had the chance to listen to it. They recorded those shows and then the tapes were sent off 
to maybe Tom Allen, who ended up producing a bunch of their records. Yeah. Uh, like I said, my facts are not quite there yet uh, as far as memorization. The, the idea of this, uh, this album totally um, introduced me to a lot of Judas Priest material before I heard it. I, I want to yeah. say that I, uh, you know, uh, it was released in 79. I, I was just, my fact checker just sent me. Released yeah. in September of 79, Unleashed in the East by Judas Priest. Uh, two Nights in Tokyo uh, in February of the same year. Uh, that's pretty quick. Yeah. Uh, it, it, I mean, a live album to chart, and it, I was right, it was Tom Allen, and uh, they had Les Binks on it. And Les Binks had just done uh, uh, Stained Class. Yes. Just done Stained Class, and it was the first record, I believe, with Les Binks. And, uh, you know, he's the one that introduced the double kick stuff to them as much as uh, Sin After Sin, an earlier record, had some double kick on it. That was a studio session drummer, Simon Phillips. Yeah. Who, yeah. It, that's We can go crazy on stuff. Right. <laughs> let's get back to the live album. That album reads like a greatest hits to me. Yeah. It does. Uh, it, it it blew my mind. Uh, my younger brother Randy turned me on to it, and it was a brand new record when he turned me on to it. So I went backwards from there. I think I got Sad Wings of Destiny right after that, and then I got Stained Class, and then you know nothing from Rockarola is on the record. Um, Hellbent for Leather was brand new. Unless uh, Binks plays on that too, so if I yeah. crossed my info there, I apologize. But so it was made up of Sad Wings, some of Sin After Sin, some of Stained Class, and some of Hellbent for Leather. Yeah, and uh, to finish mix. where Rob, Rob Halford came back in and recut his vocals when they they were going to take a look at the at the tapes at the mixes. Um, he was like, this is terrible. I can't let this record come out. And no one knew that it was not 100% live. All of the instruments are apparently live. They just yeah. recorded over his vocal tracks. And he talks about it in his book, so I guess it's okay for us to talk about that. He re-recorded. Wow. Yeah, he solidified yeah. his fears when he heard the tapes. And he was like, we can't put this out. He just went into the next room with a microphone and like just killed it and like it, it, he made it in the book it, of course he made it sound like it was one take and it was a magical moment obviously a magical moment because the vocals on that record it's one vocal track all the way through there's no doubles he may have punched in he made he didn't go into details like that incredible yeah. incredible yeah and and the record the songs are faster and meaner yeah. It's actually, I prefer to hear some of those versions way more than the studio versions of a lot of those songs. What yeah. is your take on that record? When, where were you? Um, I, it, I, uh, it also was an early acquisition for me as far as Judas Priest goes, because I was one of those guys where if I wasn't familiar with a band, I would usually start with their live album or a greatest hits compilation because my reasoning was that would be a good snapshot of their best material. And if I liked it, then I would, you know, go back into the catalog and buy the rest of the records. Uh, so, uh, steel was my first Judas priest album, but, uh, 
uh, Unleashed in the East came there quickly after. And like you said, it, it drew me back to all the other albums. Um, I thought the performance was incredible. Uh, I mean, it was just so metal. I mean, the songs were, like you said, uh, Faster, Furious. The vocal performance is insane. Um, it just sort of captured the excitement of a live performance. And so I was going to ask you, actually, I have, side note here, I have a vinyl copy of that hanging on the wall here in my in my man cave music room, home office, whatever you want to call it, uh, that is autographed by Rob Halford and uh, later autographed by Ian Hill. So, um, yeah, pretty Beautiful. proud of that. has nothing to do with the music itself, but uh, it is a great album. It's one of my favorites from Priest. And, uh, you know, the age-old argument, I guess, with that record is... There's people that wish it was a double album. And I'm going to say I'm happy enough with it being a single album because I'm one of those guys that I won't disagree with a double album, but I'm also fine with wanting more, you know, the old adage of leave them wanting more. And uh, so I think it, it's, it, it works fine as a single album. It gets in, it punches you in the face, it gets out, and it leaves you going, what just hit me, and can it please hit me again? You know what I mean? Yeah. So I'm fine with it being a single album. And the arguments of how much is live and how much is not, I don't really care. When I put it on and I listen to it, I get what I want out of it, and that's good enough for me. It's a great album. Yeah. Um, the significance of it, I think that it, um, the fact that you could actually hear your new favorite band, if you will, just as a sentence, right? Um, it, live without seeing them yet was like giving yeah. you a taste of the energy that the band had uh, had on, on stage. And the uh, imagery, and they, they were... the cover, the cover photo is amazing. I mean, the cover photo, you can practically listen to the cover photo, you know? <laughs> and that's another yeah, reason it's hanging on the wall because it's, it's a good it's piece a, of art. It's a staged photo. Uh, yeah, not taken from the show, um, because I have seen outtakes of it and yeah. notice like some of, I think it's Glenn might even be smiling, you know, he's kind of like yeah. doing a little like <laughs> chuckle or something there. There's a, it's candid in a way. And I also think it was, um, I mean, it was just hell bent for leather, uh, that I really believe they had started in their image with the leather clad and the spikes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, just a harder image because yeah. of where their music was going and where they wanted to take it. Yeah, uh, classic right, album. It's a, yeah, it's a perfect it's a perfect package. Um, yeah. There are tracks missing from that single album. I don't know if there was enough material to do a, a double live for it, but I know that Hellbent for Leather and Delivering the Goods had been omitted from the release. Because I've heard versions of of those on the CD reissued version of that years later, yeah. So there, there are some other tracks laying around. Um, yeah, it's it's one of my favorites to this day. I have the cover framed somewhere as well. Um, it's not hanging up, but it's framed. And, yeah, and if it's not, it should be. Uh, <laughs> amen to that. It's one of my favorite things in the world. That record. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, in in every way, yeah. Uh, uh, so you your turn. What do you got? Uh, Live album. 
Well, uh, I almost feel like I'm stealing this one from you, and nope. uh, but uh, I'm gonna go with uh, ACDC on Blood. You got it. Um, I remember again, uh, that was another case of I had already owned Back in Black, I owned Dirty Deeds, I owned For Those About to Rock, and then I think is about that time is when I picked up If You Want Blood. And uh, two of the three albums I just named uh, featured Brian Johnson, so I wasn't real familiar with the Bon Scott catalog yet. So I went to the live album thinking this will be a good, you know, Cliff's Notes version, if you will, of the Bon Scott catalog. And once again, the album cover drew me in, the uh, the artwork with Angus getting stabbed through the SG, you know, it was just awesome to a, what, what was I, 13 years old or 14 or something. Yeah. So how could you not like that right away? And then you turn it over and he's dead on the, on the drum rock on the back cover with the guitar neck sticking out of his back. So before I'm even into it, I'm loving it, right? And uh, again, it was just raw. It, it captured sight with uh, some of these live albums that we're talking about were my introduction to the live concert experience because I hadn't had one yet. So my imagination is running wild with what it must be like to be in that crowd and witnessing this. And uh, the song, again, it was amazing. It captured them in a period in their career when they were, you know, they already had enough great material to put out a really strong live album. And, uh, yeah, and, and I, I wasn't let down at all. Some of the banter in between the songs was great. And uh, and then in hindsight, of course, after I collected the studio albums, I realized much like Unleashed in the East on If You Want Blood, the studio tracks are played faster, meaner, rawer. Uh, it was, it was a, another perfect package. Great album. I'm sure it's, you have it in your collection somewhere. <laughs> uh, yeah, of course I do. I think that my first like band that um, I, you know, was uh, playing out live with, uh, you know, ish, maybe my second band uh, yeah. to, to kind of, we played, I think the whole record. And so, you know, we weren't an ACDC tribute band. I had never heard of such a thing because, you know, I was, 16 years old or something when I'm playing, you know, bass and trying to sing like Bon Scott. Um, you know, we, I think we played every song on that record, uh, yeah. live, you know, as best we could. I, I think some of them, we, I wasn't good enough to play the songs yet, you know? Um, yeah. and, uh, the, the, uh, I learned so much from just how, hard it is to be that simple when you just want to play fast and you know what I mean? Uh, ah. because it's, it's all about pocket. I mean, that's a whole other, uh, subject is about, about being able to play in the pocket, you know, about right. behind the feet and groove, you know, like, you know, Led Zeppelin comes to mind and it, so many things come to mind, but the, the point, the, the record came out, um, about a year before unleashed in the East. Um, if you want blood, you've got it. Uh, it's interesting. The relation 
between the two records, they read like a greatest hits. Um, and yeah. you know, I guess that's going to be the common denominator here in the show is all of these records read like greatest hits or sure, uh, you know, volumes one and two greatest hits series kind of a thing. Um, <clears throat> the, uh, the record, uh, it, you know, I just sit, can sit here and put it up on a pedestal all day, but, um, you know, the wiki here, if I just glance down at it, what pop, what pops out to me is, uh, when you think about it, it's the only like official release on vinyl or whatever, you know, a, a release by, by the record label that features a live set with Bon Scott. Um, mm. later on, you know, DVDs and, and the, of course, the theatrical release of, uh, of let there be, be rock the movie. Yeah. Uh, you know, th those are live and, and you could probably buy even live versions of those on vinyl and CD now, but it was the only show with Bon Scott, the live that this, this record was the only set recorded for release with Bon Scott. And it's just yeah. something I never thought about. Um, yeah. Especially now, years and years and years and years later, there's no, there's not another uh, live album, you know, that you can buy a record of with Bon Scott playing live. Yeah. Not knowledge and according and that, to and that it's also another one much like unleashed in the east where i'm okay with it being a single album i i think they with they, in the case of acdc they might have actually been able to put out a double album uh as far as having the material maybe not the budget or whatever uh but again i'm fine with it being a single album it it, it kicks me right in the face and i it leaves me wanting more and I think it's great, compact. There, there's, there's something to be said about economy, you know. Um, just because you have the space and the time and the material doesn't necessarily mean you should overdo it. So, right. Uh, yeah. What else you got? Give, give us one that we might not suspect. Is there, are there any live albums in your bag of tricks that, uh, that wouldn't be as obvious to some of us that know you and your background? Oh, I think that I think that they're all going to be going to be quite obvious. Yeah. Uh, but, but here's one that we can, that I want to talk about for a little bit, um, is fog hat live. Okay. There you go. That's, that's not obvious. <laughs> well, to me it is because people don't realize how many, I mean, there were a couple of years there where fog hat was killing it. They had, yeah. they had songs on the radio that were awesome. Yeah. Um, I just wish they would have played those damn live versions because once again, so much more energy and fire and the tempos were up and you could tell those guys were, were, you know, feeling twisted on stage. They were pumped yeah. up and, uh, you know, they could tell they were, you were feeding up when you play live, you feed off the energy of the audience sure. and it makes your heart race and their hearts are racing. And it's this, it's uh, it's hunger. There's that yeah. tribal thing in my brain. I started thinking, man, it's just, it's raw, you know, and you're yeah. feeling, uh, you're feeling a bit crazed in a yeah. positive way uh, because <laughs> yeah. the audience is feeding off of the band and the band is feeding off of that. And it's, uh, it's cyclable and yeah. in, it, it can, it can drive one mad with, uh, with heavy metal happiness, you know, yeah. uh, the uh, the the songs on there again. It is a uh, it reading reading like a greatest hits. 
Yeah. Uh, it had Cool for the City, of course, Slow Ride. It had an extended version of Slow Ride with all kinds of feedback and controlled feedback and just, you know, impromptu bass solos and, and breakdowns and stuff. The live version is usually, it's kind of like 100,000 years on Kiss Alive, which I, I probably shouldn't let any more cats out of the bag on that, but... Uh, yeah. Um solo is like this monolithic thing that's happening on Kiss Alive that that you think about. Well, that was part of their live show. Well, so was a, a 12 minute version of Slow Ride. Um, yeah, which makes me which makes me think about the 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 running order on uh, on Fog Hat Live is probably still only going to be about eight or nine songs tops because it's wow. a one album deal you yeah. know yeah uh, um especially with extended versions of the of the some of the songs and they're just yeah. killing it you know the slide guitar playing and and just those hit songs and the energy on those hit songs that you heard studio versions of on the radio all the time um, I love Road Fever. They were they're an amazing like boogie woogie band. And, yeah. and I always argue with myself. It's like, aren't they from England? They're an English band. Uh, I think they know, are. I think they're an English band. Yeah. And I just sound American to me. It just sounds like everything that was happening in America at that time. When you think of uh, of like. Um, Grand Funk Railroad and stuff yeah. like that. Foghat has that vibe. Yeah, yeah. All about blues and slide guitar, which is an American-born thing that obviously yeah. England and Europe did it better than we, and we kind of stole their hyped-up version of it. And it was like a really friendly war that America and Europe had with, uh, you know, old American blues and making rock and roll out of it. You can yeah. go ACDC for a second. Same thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. These guys yeah. wanted to play songs that, that had the energy of, uh, you know, Tutti Frutti and, uh, and Great Balls of Fire. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> trying to do that. <laughs> you just were doing it through Marshalls. Yeah. You, you can't lose when you take the blues and just crank it the hell up. And if Lemire were here he would be like doing shots to that statement you know oh yeah yeah speaking of lemmy uh uh, uh no sleep till hammersmith gotta oh be my one god of the great, gotta be one of the great live albums ever you know just for uh, everyone was... listening and, and watching that segue was unplanned <laughs> no sleep till hammersmith dude you, Tell me you about served it. it up on a silver platter so i'm gonna run with it but um uh, yeah, No Sleep Till Hammersmith. That was actually, again, uh, in this case, it was the very first Motorhead album I'd ever heard in its entirety. And i got to credit my friend Danny Hoekstra. Uh, he's a guy I went to high school with in San Antonio. He turned me on to so many great albums, uh, No Sleep Till Hammersmith being one of them. I remember being at his, his house and listening to it on vinyl, and just I, I had never heard anything like it before. And he loaned it to me, so I took it home and spent about a week or two with it on my turntable, and it just blew me away. It yeah. was the heaviest, most vicious-sounding thing I'd ever heard at that time. And Lemmy's voice, of course, is, you know, one of a kind. 
Uh, and again, you, you just felt like you were choking on the smoke when you heard that record from being there. And uh, crazy enough, that album went to number one on the charts upon its release in England, which is that's, completely that's bizarre, you yeah. know? Uh, but that was another one. Great packaging. The album cover caught my attention. The, the music blew me away. The music turned me into a fan. I started going back and collecting Motorhead albums because of that al uh, that particular album. And uh, I think history will prove that it stands up as like one of the all-time metal classic live albums. It uh, It came out right around the same time as Ace of Spades. Yeah, it's it, funny, it the out. albums that were listed Says it was release, released uh, summer of 81. I'm fine. I'm, I'm realizing as we're having this discussion that a lot of these albums, it is our age, I, I suppose, uh, but a lot of the great live albums came out in that period of, you know, 75 to 79, 80, somewhere in there. And yeah, uh, yeah I mean, the ones that are classics... Uh, here's another one that captured my attention when I was a youngster, a uh, young, rebellious, hoodlum-making uh, Ted Nugent, Double Live Gonzo. What a rip-roaring oh. album that is, man. Oh, my yeah, God. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and the cool thing is, is some of that was recorded in San Antonio, Texas. It sure was. Yes, it and was. That, that changes everything for you and I. It's like uh, holy ground. I'm not quite sure what venue... Uh, it would have been. Um, yeah, I want to say Municipal Auditorium, but it could have been Freeman Coliseum. Yeah. Um, and, the, and the songs from Texas that weren't recorded in Antonio, there was also a handful of them that were recorded in Dallas. So it's, it's, it's very much a Texas album uh, from Ted Nugent, who, of course, is from Detroit. So... Um, interesting that he didn't record that album in you know closer to home say Kobo Arena or something like that he uh he chose to take the recordings from uh Texas you know Dallas and San Antonio um but that was an album that just destroyed me I mean talk about uh, just a maniac captured on vinyl and making you feel like you were there and some of that I think guitar playing was just unbelievable that live version of great white buffalo just uh, blows your head off and then some of the uh, you know ted his his between song banter and some of it is so classic from that album i mean nashville pussy took their name from that album because of the banter uh in between songs that ted nugent was so famous for rat-a-tat-tat -tat, you know on the mic yeah. in between songs uh but yeah, talk about making you feel like you were there. You can almost feel him sweat just listening to that record. It's, you know, you know, like you said earlier and like I said earlier, uh, it's rawer, it's meaner, it's faster. It, it, but that album is really precise, too. Ted's guitar playing is is unbelievably precise for as fast as they're chugging along on those songs. And the banter, I don't know how much of it he rehearsed, but even if you rehearsed, Anything that's that much of a tongue twister, you're going to screw it up once in a while. <laughs> he just rattles it off, no problem. Yeah, was, it's crazy. He, it was he was kind of singing his raps, his in between yeah. banter. He's almost singing, and, and you know Paul Stanley got pretty good at that too. But it was uh, Paul Stanley is a little more. Uh, uh, he he's got a different attack, of course. 
Yeah. yeah. Ted, Ted was on, uh, it was almost like he was a speed freak, but yeah. apparently he was, uh, he's drug free and has been forever. And yeah. that, that's great uh, to keep that yeah, in. You wouldn't know it. So. Yeah. You wouldn't, you wouldn't, have, you wouldn't know it from that banter. You would be, yeah, you, yeah, I don't know where that motor mouth comes from, but he really has a knack for it and it really shines on double live Gonzo. And his playing really stands out to me on on that album. I, I agree. And the song titles. I think, everybody, I think everybody really plays their ass off on that record. I, I yeah. think all of the vocals. It's it's. Uh, I'm just kind of looking at some stuff here. Um, Cliff Davies on drums and backing vocals. Rob Grange on bass, and Derek St. Holmes, who was living in Dallas for a while and still might be living in Dallas. I don't know. I heard he's like the nicest guy when you meet him. Yeah. He's legendary. He sang all the time on many records. Yeah. And you think about Stranglehold, that's not Ted Nugent singing for, for yeah. everyone out there listening and watching this. That's Derek St. Holmes. And that's yeah. probably Ted's biggest hit. And it's an album yeah. track. That song's, I don't even know how long that song is, especially on Double Life Gonzo. It's yeah. long, which even goes longer. with uh, what we've been talking about. You know, the live versions are, uh, are a treat because uh, you you get those breakdowns that are extended, and um, it is a double album, and uh, you know it's amazing that 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 everyone in the late seventies, early eighties was, was were getting away with putting a live album out at all, um, and uh, you know I'm sure we're going to talk about this stuff before. I wanted to bring up Tom Worman. Uh, was one of the producers on this and he went on to produce wow. I think Motley Crue and Kicks and it's, and I think Junkyard. I think he did Junkyard. Um yeah. but uh Rick Rick Brody, who I think produced like the first poison record. I I could be wrong there. I swear that's that's who did yeah. uh, first poison record was Rick Brody. He, yeah. yeah he was probably an elder statesman even back then. Uh not yeah. that that means anything but I mean, this record came out in, you know, 78 or something. So he was yeah. probably a young, oh, he produced Pariah. Tom Warman produced the Pariah record. Our producer, ah, uh, there you go. Jared, was in Pariah. He worked with Tom Warman. He probably had some stories he could actually add. Yeah. Uh, but here's a big one there uh, is an engineer that worked on Double Live Gonzo named Chet Himes who is from Austin, Texas, who I believe played in a band with Van Wilkes for people here in Austin who know who Van Wilkes is, blues guitar, hangs out with Billy Gibbons all the time, bada, bada, bada. Yeah. Of history in Austin there, Chet Himes uh, worked on, uh, on Double Live Gonzo. And here's a freak out story. I was doing something with Chet Himes uh, it, there's been a couple of times I've been lucky enough to work with Chet, uh, and I forget the name of his studio right now, but he had uh, a, a a gold or a platinum, I can't remember, sales award of Ted Nugent Double Live Gonzo hanging oh. up on the wall in the studio with his name, and I'm looking at Chet, and I'm looking <laughs> at that award, and I'm looking at Chet, and I'm going, what, what? <laughs> you know, kind of a thing, and I'm like, he's like, yeah, I worked on that record, and I'm like, I'm not worthy this is wow. crazy. This is part of my childhood. And he's like, yeah, dude, it was fun just to be there and work on that. Um, oh. You know, it just says that he was, 
you know, one of the remote recorder personnels. So he was there helping them record that shit. Wow. Uh, you know, getting it on tape. That's a big deal. Yeah. Well, uh, if he if he's based in Texas, uh, that might have something to do with uh, some of the dates on the album being recorded in Texas. I don't know. Maybe maybe that had there was a connection there. Yeah. So so Chet Himes just died this year, like and just died this year. It's just now 2020. He was 73. Wow. And this is an Austin American Statesman article that people can look up and read about it. I'm not I'm not going to read it, but it yeah. says he died. Uh, he died Saturday. So that would have just been oh wow a week ago now, right? So wow. it's it's crazy. And Chet was awesome. Well, I, I don't have to tell you how awesome he was. Yeah. He, he engineered a double yeah. live Gonzo. Listen to double live Gonzo. He worked, he worked <laughs> with uh, Christopher Cross and many many people. And obviously, he worked with uh, hit makers. He worked with Jerry Jeff Walker, Carol King. Uh, several albums he engineered are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Well, that's a whole other story, too, because, yeah. you know, if part of me wants to say, fuck the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But you know what? The fact that Chet worked on records that uh, are worthy, amen to Chet. And it's sad yeah. to see him go. Um, yeah. 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 He actually recorded a Broken Teeth album, Dave. He recorded uh, Blood on the Radio. He engineered our live, uh, our live album, our first live album, Blood on the Radio. Did not know that. Wow. Pretty cool, right? I have That's full awesome. From double, from double Live Gonzo to Blood on the Radio. Amen <laughs> uh, to Chet. Yeah, amen to Chet. Jared for feeding us that intel. I would have, I, for some reason, I, I couldn't remember that. Um, here's yeah. one for you. Uh, here's another one for you, and, and I'm sure you'll have some input on this. Uh, Saxon, The Eagle Has Landed. Great live album. Yeah. Uh, uh, that, that's, another, uh, that's another one I owe to my pal Danny Hoekstra from San Antonio, our high school days. Uh, he might have turned me on to that the same day he turned me on to No Sleep Till Hammersmith. But I was familiar with Saxon because living in San Antonio, uh, the great Joe Anthony, the DJ on 99.5 Kiss, was uh, he, he plays Saxon on the radio. So I was familiar with the band, knew some studio tracks, uh, but had not heard that album. And I listened to it, and again, um, you, you know, interestingly enough, that album, the cover doesn't portray the live experience. It's just a stark black cover with the band's logo in like blood red, uh, which was was visually appealing, but it was unlike some of the other albums we've talked about. But uh, the, uh, the photos on the back of that album, I remember turning it over and there's that photo of Biff Byford. He's got one fist raised and his hair is like in mid head bang. And it's like eight feet long off the side of his head and he's got the studded wristband that goes down to his elbow. And I was like, Oh my God, dude, this guy, this just looks rock and roll, you know, see that, that image uh, that you just sort of painted right there is exactly what a young, uh, you know, future headbanger wants, wants to see, Whoa, what, what's going on here with this, you know, <laughs> This young this looks fun. <laughs> yeah, with this young English man with a microphone in it. Obviously, it just looks loud. Yeah, it looks loud and it looks fiery and it it's the it's an energy, 
And obviously you can't wait to listen to the record when you see that kind of stuff. Yeah. And even though Unleashing the East and uh, If You Want Blood, You've Got It is a staged photo. Those are staged photos because it's theatrical. Yeah. Uh, you can't wait to listen to that record. Yeah. And, and when you do, it's like, uh, again, the, the running order is great. The energy is, is, is cranked, you know, uh, in retrospect, after you collect all the Saxon albums, you realize at that point in time, it was, again, a greatest hits package. I mean, let's face it, the point of putting out a live album is to sort of capture your best moments leading point, right? Right. And uh, so it only makes sense that you're going to highlight your best material at that time. But uh, that album also, lots of energy, great playing, uh, a lot of speed and fury, and uh, interesting side note, uh, and you may know this, um, do you know the connection between that album and Nigel Glockler, the drummer? It's his first record with the band. That's was a, was a live album. Most people will, you know, he, he his first studio album with the band was Power and the Glory, of course, right. but uh, he actually first appeared on an album on The Eagle Has Landed, which That's I believe right. was the Denim and Leather Tour. Because I think correct. he joined them in time for the Denim and Leather Tour. But again, uh, a great album. Uh, it came out at a time when I'm discovering, you know, the Iron Maidens and the Judas Priests and the Motorheads and uh, bands like that. And Saxon fit right in there, of course. And the performance and the delivery of that album never gets old. It's a it's another classic live album, in my opinion. I, I met I met Saxon and Nigel only two months before this record came out. I met him right. in Austin in March, in March of 82. And this record came out, uh, or I'm sorry, it was recorded actually, I'm sorry, in, uh, 81 and part of 82. Yeah. So the end of 81 and, and, you know, parts of 82. Yeah. So, uh, kind of just an interesting factoid, uh, about these things that were sort of like recalling and picking up and things like that. I, uh, I think that we're about, uh, due for our outros here. Yeah. I was going to say I, we're I running a little I long. Just, I just, yeah, that's okay. I want to, I want to just say this. I love this show that we're doing here. Yeah. All of these live records. Cause you, you surprised me just for everyone listening. We don't really plan this. We'll pick a loose topic. Okay. Yeah. Live albums go right. Yeah. There's an, so exactly. the a little bit more of an obvious one. Uh, I didn't plan on talking about Fog Hat. I didn't know you were going to bring up Eagle Has Landed. I love it. This is yeah. A, I could talk about this kind of stuff for a thousand years, but and we will. Yeah. My my shot of rock to you is uh, we've been friends now for 25 years. Uh, ever since I've moved to Austin at least, and that's 25 years. What I was going to ask you is, do you remember the very first time we met? Um, yes, I do. Uh, it, it, you know, when you, when you say that out loud, my, I have to kind of go through a mental Rolodex kind of yeah. thing because it's just that way with me. 
But it wasn't even in Austin or San Antonio that we actually met. We actually met in Corpus Christi around the holidays. Correct. Um, t tell me what year that was. Uh, I remember the Black Album by Metallica was brand new, so I'm going to say it was 90-91, somewhere right I, in there. Probably, probably Christmas 90. I was going to say Thanksgiving, but you're yeah. right. It's the holiday season in 90 or 91. We're in Corpus Christi. What else do you yeah, remember probably, about that? Probably the end of 90. I don't remember. Uh, I had gone to a little rock bar called Zeros to meet yes. up with some friends and realized there's a bunch of San Antonio, you know, headbangers there that I knew uh and because sith was playing scythe scythe right yeah and when you think about uh just a holiday show in your hometown i was down there to see my dad i would go down there every holiday and just hang with my dad for a day or two right yeah and i just went out to the to the rock bar and there you guys were and i ended up going back to the hotel just to hang out with you dudes for a little while and there you were I didn't remember meeting you at the at the bar itself, but yeah, yeah. that was it. Well, uh, I, I remember so I'll I'll add to that story. So I'm I'm at this club Zeros with my friends from San Antonio who are in this band, this speed metal, heavy metal, thrash metal band, whatever you want to call it, called Scythe. And Scythe is on stage. I'm standing in the crowd watching my friends rock out. Uh I get this tap on my shoulder. I turn around, I'm wearing a black leather motorhead jacket, and I turn around to see who's tapping on my shoulder. It's you. And you point at my jacket and you something like, nice jacket, dude, because, of course, we can't hear anything. The band is just raging. And I'm, like, sitting there like, oh, my God, it's the guy from Dane Toys. <laughs> and I don't know you at this time, right? And I have no idea that you're originally from Corpus Christi, and I don't know anything. Except you're the guy from Dangerous Toys who I've seen on MTV, and you're tapping me on the shoulder at this hole in the wall in Corpus Christi, commenting me on my jacket. So when the band finally quiets down or leaves the stage or whatever, uh, I pick up the conversation with you. And uh, again, you said something about my jacket, and I told you a friend of mine painted it, and uh, we got to talking a little bit, and I said, me and the band... And a few other guys have a couple hotel rooms down the street. Uh, you're welcome to come back and join us if you want. I didn't know anything about you at the time. And I was, you know, trying to bait you with the fact that we had two bathtubs full of beer. And, you know, I was like, whatever. We got to get this guy to come back to the hotel and hang out with us. Because I'm all stoked that you're the guy from Dangerous Toys. And my buddies are all stoked that you're the guy from Watchtower, right? <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> well, we we were all we were all young, and you were ready to you know play party Marty. You know, yeah, you yeah, exactly. <laughs> stay up late, drink beers with with your friends, and talk about rock and roll. So. And you did, and and you were gracious enough to join us. And uh, my my friends were you know impressed that you came back. You were at their show. You came back and spent some time with us. And that was our very first meeting, and I'll never forget it. And it probably wouldn't have happened if I wasn't wearing a Motorhead jacket. So thank it's, you to Lemmy and the boys. It, it's <laughs> po it's possible, but you know, I always it, it goes back to you know you look for uh, when you don't know anybody because you know when when you're when you're just kind of hanging out, you know, 
what is it that you look for when you want to celebrate what you're in love with and that be rock and roll. And those yeah. things pop out those things. Uh, I have to say something to this guy about his jacket because it's yeah. brilliant. Yeah. It's yeah. Freaking me out. I love this. And I'm, I'm not one to play shy when someone's got some kick-ass wares going on. Right. Like, oh, that's <laughs> awesome. You know, just you know that my opinion of that, I approve whether, uh, you know, whether I'm something or nothing, you know, I, I approve. Um, yeah. My shot of rock you is what do you remember for a lot of, a lot of people don't realize that uh, Dave metal Dave is a, uh, is a journalist uh, on the side of having somewhat of a real job and a real life. He's <laughs> a, a rock journalist and um, has been lucky enough to interview like some of our idols and uh, what do you remember about interviewing Glenn Tipton of Judas Priest? <laughs> I've always wanted to hear you comment on that, uh, whether Glenn, it's you know, deep thoughts or not. Yeah, uh, Glenn Tipton, guitarist for Judas Priest. Um, the thing I remember most, and you know, it's weird. You know, we've had this discussion before. Sometimes it's the sidebars that you remember the most. And the thing I remember the most about the interview with Glenn Tipton was he actually called me from a tour stop in Romania. And it's the first and only time I've conducted an interview over the phone from Texas to Romania. <laughs> well, that's, uh, I mean, if this is pre-cell phone, that phone bill was astronomical. It what wasn't my was... phone bill. <laughs> that's right. I know that. What, what? What year was that? Um, it was they were promoting the Nostradamus record and oh, they were okay. they were heading back to America to do the Metal Masters tour, which oddly enough, I ran into you at that show in San Antonio. Yeah. But uh, Heaven um, and Hell and Testament, maybe? And Motorhead, yeah. yeah that's right. That's yeah. right. Yep. And uh, so I'm talking to Glenn. Uh, he's calling from Romania. We're discussing the Nostradamus album, which was kind of an interesting topic because, as you know, uh, that album is a, is a pretty polarizing album among Judas Priest fans. Um, but he raised a point uh, that, you know, uh, uh, people tend to think of Judas Priest as all British steel hellbent for leather screaming for vengeance. Um, but he pointed out that, you know, if you take a look back at Point of Entry and Turbo, uh, uh, Priest was never afraid of taking chances, and Nostradamus was just another one of those rolls of the dice. And at the time, I remember, it was very, the fans were very divided as to whether or not they liked it. But he did make that point. Um, he also said that, you know, they were going to add a few songs into the set on the from that album, but he mentioned that at some point in a year or two afterward, they had plans of coming back and doing that album in its entirety. And that never materialized. Uh, you could argue for better or worse, but that never that never did happen. Um, and then just, you know, the rest, I asked him, I also asked him um, if at this late stage he ever got tired of going on stage in all the leather, you know, it's like, at 60-some years old, which was about his age at the time, don't you wish you could just go on in jeans and a T-shirt? And he said, no. And he says, when we go on stage as Judas Priest, we've got to be the monster. we got to show up with the, with the leather and the spikes because that 
turns us in, that transforms us into the fighting unit that is Judas Priest. And I thought that was an interesting take coming from a guy who had, you know, proven himself, had nothing left to prove, uh, and would probably be a lot more comfortable on stage in some chuckers and jeans and a T-shirt, but he was adamant that, no, when we go on as Judas Priest, we wear the leather. And I thought that was really cool. <laughs> well, they have to. It's kind of like no one wants to. No one wanted to see the Ramones without torn jeans, Chuck yeah. Taylor's, and leather jackets on, even if it's 110 degrees in Texas. Yeah. You always saw Ramones with leather jacket. Another thing, another point I remember from that interview, he was in Romania, right? So wow. he said he left the hotel and went next door, and there was a shop uh, next to the hotel that sold, you know, T-shirts and records and and things like that. And he walked in to take a look around, and obviously the the you know the store clerks and whatnot recognized him. And he said they didn't say anything to him, but all of a sudden, standing in there, and all of a sudden the music changes and they start playing Judas Priest. But they were playing deep cuts, and he said that they they started playing uh, "Delivering the Goods," and he thought he had a moment there where he was like, "Oh my God, we've really done some great material over the years." that was a deep cut and it wasn't something they played every night and it sort of reminded him of just how much great material they had and it was kind of interesting that it took a trip to Romania and a chance uh, trip into this store one recognized him and reminded him of how great the back catalog was and how great the deep cuts were and things like that so he was a really cool guy really Awesome. He uh, mentioned in, in closing, he mentioned that he loves to paint, loves to go fishing, uh, very much an outdoor guy, and uh, likes to play golf and tennis and stay. So uh, obviously it was an honor to to interview a guy who's a, one of the architects of the type of music you and I love. So I, I think that it's in, it's I'm I'm envious uh, and, you know, I wouldn't have. I would have known how to, you know, to come back with something after he's just being human because you don't think about someone like Glenn Tipton, uh, uh, you know, uh, being, having, having a moment where he's thinking, you know, he doesn't walk, he doesn't walk around and go, yeah, I'm in Judas Priest and we're great. And our material was awesome. He's not thinking right. that he didn't, he's not, that's the last thing on his mind. That's, that's part of his job in Judas Priest is to, to work on that. But yeah. You know, you're not asking him about that. He's telling you about it. And that's, yeah. that's really cool. That's the kind of stuff I try to dig up in interviews. And we'll talk more in the future about other ones. But I always try to find an angle that allows me to get a piece of the the human being besides the stage persona. So yeah. that's where the interesting stuff comes from. Yeah, I agree. Right. I think we've done it for this episode, uh, Jason. Uh, I will see you again the next time. Meanwhile, I'd like to thank everybody for tuning in. It's Metal Dave Glessner here, along with my co-host, Jason McMaster. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talk Louder. Talk Louder.